0: everyone and welcome back to the Balanced Bodies Blueprint. I am your host, Vinny Russo, along here with my co-host, Dr. Aaron Stansfield. Even better this time. We're getting, we're getting there. So, with this podcast, we're shifting gears from all the conventional narrative you hear on Most Fitness Podcasts, as our main emphasis lies in preventative healthcare, adopting a holistic approach to nutrition, and challenging the traditional views on various fitness topics. Our mission here with this podcast is to serve you as a beacon, guiding you on a journey towards achieving optimal health. Today, we have a pretty cool uh, podcast in store for you. Uh, We will be discussing emotional eating, especially with what sets it off, and some proven strategies on how to deal with this phenomenon. So with emotional eating, I know just as a nutrition coach in general, and as a competitor, not only did I Have to deal with it with clients, but I also dealt with it myself. Um, Dr. Stansfield, I know you as a competitor too, I believe you probably encountered a little bit of emotional eating as well.
1: Of course, I'm human.
0: Yes. Yeah. So emotional eating, it can be influenced by a range of psychological and environmental factors, but it really just it really involves the brain's reward and pleasure system. It also deals with some learned associations between emotions and food. Uh, that's like, a, that's just like a general overview of it. But Dr. Aaron, do you have, um, like a, a medical definition to it? Or is there like a medical outlook on it?
1: Well, in general, um, emotional eating just refers to overeating during a dysphoric mood. Um, It is a common pattern that can be associated with weight gain, binge eating disorder, depression, and poor emotion regulation skills. Um, Studies looking at treatment in overweight and obese people in particular um, look at this particular eating pattern associated with emotions. Um, And uh, typically, these are the type of people that shouldn't just be focused on calorie restricted diets, right? Um, They need some emotional regulation skills as well.
0: Yeah, and and I feel even with that, like the biggest challenge in trying to combat this emotional eating, it lies in that instant but temporary gratification, right? It provides like this sense of relief during these very difficult moments for people. And having that dopamine release after eating something like a food that, that brings that out of you, it provides that sense of release, but it's very, very short lived, uh, because once that meal's over, you know, all those underlying emotions resurface, keeping this vicious cycle alive. So having those emotion regulation skills that you just mentioned is it's going to be crucial if you're dealing with this on how to overcome it, um.
1: So yeah, I think this topic is often neglected in medical practice. Um, If you have a well-informed physician, they're going to take a multidisciplinary approach to evaluate their patients, right? And that will include looking at different eating behaviors and eating cues and not just um, being focused on uh, reduction of BMI, for example. Uh, Weight loss interventions, unfortunately, often fail uh, to take this into account and it is, uh, very important, especially if a patient has these sort of eating patterns.
0: Yeah. And I know bringing you on, uh, initially when I had team VR, uh, when you were just going to be the physician, um, basically you, you said like, Hey, like, I want this to be a full body approach. I need the mind to be addressed as well. And that's something that really resonated with me because like you said, like it gets widely overlooked, especially coming from a physician's standpoint. Um, Do you feel like most physicians overlook this and just try to like get sort of, you know, just try to make them lose weight and reduce their BMI? Like, what do you think about that?
1: Um, I think so, um, based on my experience, right? anecdotal experience with uh, general practitioners who have, you know, 40 patients a day, and maybe they're dealing with somebody who is obese and, and they're uh, giving some advice as far as like reduction in weight or i.e. reduction in BMI, they're not going to dig into the root cause of um, what may be influencing this patient to overeat, right? Um, it's often they're too busy to um, look at and to ask or to query the patient in that regard. So they're just going to, you know, shuffle them out and say, here's, you know, a basic nutrition plan, or um, if they're really good, they'll say, you know, they'll give a referral to a dietitian. Um, but I see this a lot where it's not addressed. They, um, patients do have often um, some kind of psychological component to some of these behaviors that they um, display. And um, it's unfortunate that they get shuffled off and kind of grouped into the category of, let's just lose weight.
0: Yeah, and so basically it's like, because of the psychological aspect of this, of this emotional eating, um, there's just not enough time spent with the patients to actually understand what's going on, why it's why it's actually happening. Instead, they're just kind of getting the, uh, f- I'll just use this for lack of a better term. the phenotypic like here's here's what's wrong. Let's fix that instead of like diving deep within and trying to figure out what's really being the root cause of of this overweight or obesity
1: yeah, I think and and to be fair, um, you know, a lot of physicians aren't trained in psychology or psychiatry um, because that's not their specialty. But then again, you know that's where you take the multidisciplinary approach where if a um, if a patient is struggling you need to figure out why they're struggling right and then if they need a referral then that can be appropriate um, especially in this setting
0: do you feel like if physicians had more time with their patients if they weren't seeing 40 patients per day maybe 20 and they spent a little bit extra time with them they would actually realize and say hey i need to refer you out to help you with this issue
1: absolutely yeah i've I, i have a very low threshold for um, referring my patients to um, a trained psychologist or a psychiatrist, depending on what the issue is. Um, But if I feel like it's going to help with the overall picture, um, I will do so.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you always got to be cognizant of the way that comes off to the the client or patient, right? Because it's like, what do you mean? What do you mean? I have something wrong with me? Like they might go that route. And that's difficult. It's difficult to take on, but you know, you need to become aware of it, which is something that we're going to talk about in a little bit.
1: Yeah, it is difficult, it's, not, it's hard to admit that um, you might need help in that regard. I think the stigma is uh, getting better with, with counseling, um, but of course there's a stigma. Um, I usually try to spin it in that it will help them in their long-term success, um, especially around, you know, if their goal is to reduce their BMI, then why not um, look at all the planes of doing that, including um, emotions and mindfulness.
0: Yeah, that's more elegant than than what I say. I'm I'm usually just like, listen, you're you're not weak by asking for help. You're actually showing strength there because you're being vulnerable. Uh, but you said a little bit more elegant than I did. Um, so let's let's dive a little bit into what causes um, these emotional eating patterns. And I know one thing for certain, and, and it's a it is a, a hot topic word. Um, is triggers and having these emotional triggers. And I wrote down a definition here, let me just pull it up real quick, um, that I want to read verbatim because I think it does a pretty good job of explaining what it is. Um, So here it says, emotional triggers can be diverse, including stress, anxiety, depression, loneliness, boredom, frustration, sadness, and even positive emotions like celebration or reward. These triggers can significantly influence eating habits and dietary choices. Now, Just coming from that type of perspective, did you, and and I know through competing, have you had any emotional triggers that caused you to emotionally eat?
1: Oh, yeah. So um, I think not even during competition, right? When I was uh, in residency, um, you are have a stressful day. Um, You're busy, you don't have a lot of time, so you're unprepared, so that plays into it. And then, um, you know, something really bad happens. Uh, Maybe, you know, one of your patients coded or, um, you know, a a surgical outcome didn't go the way that you wanted. It's very stressful, so um, you grab whatever you can in the cafeteria, and hospital cafeterias are the worst. (laughs) So um, we had, in our cafeteria, we um, actually could personalize our pizzas and and which was very satisfying emotionally, but um, probably not great for you. Um, It probably would have been great if if I would have been mindful about it. Uh, But yeah, of course, um, if you have a stressful day, it's very easy to seek comfort in food. Um, I think that's a very um, human thing. I, I don't think, I think we can all relate to that in some regard.
0: Yeah, and, and what you're really um, referring to is th- this stress-induced eating. And that's really just the body's attempt to regulate the stress hormones by providing some sense of comfort and relief, right? And it does this by influencing the food preferences that, that you actually want. And it pushes them towards, you know, these highly palatable, um, calorically dense, sugary, fatty foods Uh, because it's going to make you feel a little bit better so that trigger the stress is definitely definitely emotional trigger there now just going back to um to what you were talking about um, a little bit earlier um, and what we mentioned a little bit earlier was how there's this neurobiological basis of it to where uh, emotional eating can actually be linked towards that brain's reward system right and it primarily involves you know neurotransmitters like dopamine Can you just touch a little bit on for our listeners um, what dopamine is does to uh, to us when it gets released?
1: Um, Well, it's a pleasure hormone, right? So it makes us uh, feel pleasure, and um, you know if we have that release, then then it's going to be linked to a pleasurable activity. Typically, we're going to want to be able to do it again, Um, and it can be kind of an addictive thing. In that we seek out to feel pleasure Um, so depending on what your regulation is with it then you might want more of that you might want to engage in those pleasure seeking behaviors which might include eating something that is delicious
0: yeah quote-unquote delicious right Uh, (laughs) but what you're talking about there too is like once it happens um, you're gonna want to you you basically find a solution to it or what you think is a solution. And it almost becomes like this learned association. And what happens is you develop this association between that specific emotion and then what food did you use to combat that negative emotion? So for example, feeling sad, it might trigger a craving for ice cream, right? Because maybe in the past when you were really upset and you ate ice cream, it made you feel a little bit better. And that over time, they reinforce these emotional eating patterns that can be pretty detrimental to one's health.
1: Right, right. Do
0: you, do you see anything in terms of like, uh, maybe with like childhood, uh, with something that happens early on in childhood where automatically that's like, just gets ingrained in them?
1: Now you're getting into like Freudian uh, psychology here, which is out of my realm of sp- of specialty. Um, I will say that I think that this, these patterns are very complex, right? Um, I think I, to be Fair. I don't think we understand them completely. Um, I think there's, you know, there's a neurobiological basis. There's hormones associated with that, and then there's um, environment, right? So, like, what kind of childhood did you have? Uh, what kind of um, coping mechanisms did you develop in childhood? Um, were they associated with food? Um, or even and some of those coping mechanisms don't even have to develop in childhood they could develop later on in life um, so I think it it is very complex looking at it from a very med- from medical perspective which is why again I will say that you know looking at the psychology of things um, I feel out of my realm to say yes this is probably why this person is going to overeat because you know they had a bad childhood? I think there's so many things that play into it, um, and and to be honest, I think the patient probably has um, some awareness of that. And once you dig deep into that, they're the ones that can actually vocalize where there might be some coping mechanisms that they're displaying.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was a good explanation there. Um... But we talked about emotional triggers being like one of the main things that could set off these emotional eating patterns. But there's also something that I've realized, especially with people going through dieting phases and what happens to them, um, that it's something with dichotomous thinking, right? So dichotomous thinking is really just like a black or white or all or nothing type thing. It's where they're labeling food as being either good or bad or healthy versus unhealthy. And this can actually lead to emotional eating patterns. Have you dealt with anyone in particular, or have you ever dealt with anything in your life to where you had this dichotomous view with dieting?
1: 100%. <laughs> I think you were the one. So it's funny because, um, you know, working with you, um, actually, you know, as a competitor, uh, you know, we get our diet plans from hopefully somebody that has a little bit of training in in dieting and nutrition, but oftentimes that's not even the case. But often they would give me plans that would say, these are clean foods. Um, And so if you say these are clean foods, then what's the opposite of that or um, the antithesis of that is dirty. It's dirty, you know, it's a dirty food. And I think, um, you know, when you are trying to... uh, you know, do a competition or meet a certain goal. You start to associate these are clean foods. These are foods I can have, and then you have these other foods that you cannot have. That they're they're labeled as bad or um, or not good for you. And I'm not saying that there are aren't foods like that. There are, but I think um, taking that to an extreme level can also be detrimental. Right anything to an extreme level can cause an issue. And then we get into the more realm of like the eating disorders, right? Um, and I think, honestly, I think that's something that also needs to be looked at in medical practice. So, um, you know, is a patient um, wanting to just get healthy or, or do they have um, some underlying psychological um, pathology that's driving them to, um, practice, um, a, a maladaption, if you will, um, as far as like food choices go. Um, yeah, it's a very fine line. Um, and it's something that we all need to be aware of. Um, especially when we're treating clients or, um, treating patients as I call them patients and you call them clients, yeah. um, that awareness is, it needs to be there.
0: Yeah. And like you mentioned before, like labeling it as clean and then labeling it as dirty, that's going to evoke you know, some strong emotional response to where, like, if you consume a food that you label as dirty, you're going to feel some form of guilt or shame, right? To where, like, if if you're consuming something that's quote-unquote clean, um, it might actually elicit a false sense of accomplishment um, just to make you feel a little bit better. I know um, this dichotomous view is literally like a prerequisite for that eating disorder called orthorexia, And orthorexia is taking this to the extreme. It's like you don't touch anything that you think is labeled dirty. And you have to understand, like, no food is inherently bad, right? It's everything in excess. So I like to look at it as not being clean or dirty or good or bad. I like to think of it as, like, this food shows a little bit more love to your body than that food. So, for example, an apple probably shows a little bit more love to your body than a Snickers bar would. That doesn't mean you can't have the stickers bar. It Doesn't mean it's dirty or bare for you. Just eat the foods that love your body. You have them more often than you have the other ones.
1: I can say, like from personal experience, um, you know, this dichotomy for me got very extreme. To the, you know, to the point of where I would eliminate certain foods from my diet, and then if they were reintroduced, um, I would have um, GI upset. So you know, that included diarrhea or being gassy. And when I reintroduce those foods and then I would it was a psychological component and I would feel guilty then right like this food doesn't make me feel good and now I now I actually physically feel bad um, And unfortunately on the on the on the other side of the coin, you can get um, binge eating episodes, right where you're, you you restrict so much that that all of a sudden you want those foods that you're restricted from. And um, and there's this guilt cycle that goes along with that.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned it too, like taking that to the extreme, there's more than that like it, obviously the extremes aren't good, but what happens when you take this dichotomous view and you only eat these clean foods and you basically pigeonhole yourself into certain food choices, you're very limited, number one, which is not going to be sustainable. And number two, you might even develop some nutrient imbalances because you're cutting out some food groups that, have maybe a little bit more vitamins or minerals or phytonutrients than other foods that you're constantly consuming um but you you hit the nail on the head like the next thing that that i was going to bring up was the binge eating um and that's just due to over restriction and it's an all-or-nothing mentality which goes hand in hand with the dichotomous view because once you fuck up on your diet then you're just like ah fuck it whatever i'll start back up tomorrow and you just go all in and you don't even care Right? I usually give this analogy and I've heard it multiple times in different podcasts where it's like just because you drive your car and you get a flat tire right? just because you pop one tire doesn't mean you grab a knife and you pop all the other ones right? that would be all or nothing you said fuck it let me just make it as bad as possible and then I'll fix it tomorrow it's like no what you do is you fix the tire and then you just get back on the road or back on track quote unquote with your plan and you take it from there but the dichotomous view is all about you know good or bad and, and this all or nothing mentality, which leads to different things, especially binge eating.
1: Yes. Totally agree with that and have experienced it personally
0: yeah i mean i my first competition ever i experienced it uh because listen when i first started competing i if i had 90 grams of blueberries and i had 91 on my plate i would cut the blueberry in half that's how ocd crazy i was i needed it to be perfect and over time you realize like it doesn't have to be like that you there's a range that you could fuck with um but after my first competition I was just like my mind was on it wasn't even on it was like all right, i'm gonna hit stage and i'm like what am i doing after like i wasn't even appreciating you know the time it took and like that the stage presence i wasn't even i was thinking about what am i going to eat afterwards because i was so restricted and that that literally is a form of binge eating because afterwards i ate like shit and i ate like shit for a couple of days until i was like yo i don't even feel good my body does not want this so um, I've dealt with it as well, and it was mainly from the over-restriction where I was so anal with my first competition, that's kind of what happened.
1: I think a couple days is uh, is not bad. <coughs> People go um, for long periods of time. Um, it's unfortunate.
0: Without a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. No, I, I got pretty lucky, but that rebound was not fortunate at all. Like, <laughs> I held... I I gained so much weight, and it's such a short okay. period of time, and it's like, what the fuck? It took me six months to get to a certain point, and then it took me five days, and now I'm back to before I started. At least you yeah. look like that, right? Yeah. So,
1: I think uh, it's often not spoken about, though, in the competition side, uh, circles. Um, well, it should be. It should be spoken about more. I think
0: it should be, but then you show weakness, right? Then people show weakness. They, people who are competitors and I'm gonna just generalize a lot of it here, but the psychology behind it is like, I'm doing something that people can't do, I'm stronger, I'm better, it's almost like this power trip. So when you show a sign of weakness with binge eating, you're not gonna fucking tell people that because you look weak and vulnerable there. But the truth is, everyone's dealing with it, so if you do talk about it, you actually shed some light on some area and you allow other people to open up and talk about it, and that's how you get help. Yeah. So, From a
1: scientific point of view, I think it'd be interesting to look at how many competitors actually have some level of OCD type behaviors. Because <laughs> well, I, I I would I would think that a lot of them would.
0: I'm going 85% or above. <laughs> That's what I'm going with. But but that goes hand in hand with what we want to dive into, which is some strategies that help deal with these types of eating behaviors. And the main thing is really trying to understand the root cause because that's gonna be essential for creating these effective strategies to actually deal with it. So there are a few strategies that we're gonna mention um, that can actually help you uh, if you suffer with emotional eating. And one of the main things is uh, mindfulness. And I know that term gets thrown around a lot, Um, but if you literally pay attention, you pay deliberate attention to this present moment, without any judgment, that's what mindfulness is. So if you're in that moment, right? And you're paying attention to everything that you're feeling, you then become aware of the emotions that are coming on, which then means you could probably understand the emotional triggers that you're dealing with. But what that does is it allows you to respond to these emotions and these emotional triggers in a non-reactive manner. And that's what we need. We need this awareness because awareness precedes change. So if you become aware of emotions, as they come on, it's gonna make it easier to address them, which then can allow for you to change.
1: Um, So, you know, when you speak of mindfulness, um, part the science part of me kind of protests a little bit in that, you know, I I like data. And so when you look at the data around, I'm gonna say the soft sciences, like psychological studies, it's it's sometimes hard to tease out Um, but you know I I briefly looked um, did you know uh, to see if there were any randomized control studies um, in the literature and there was actually one that was kind of somewhat interesting Um, it was done in 2022 and they were looking at the efficacy of mindful eating um, in a program they they took a bunch of um, it was done in Spain I believe um, the cohort was Spanish Um, but they basically um, did a program um, with the thought of reducing emotional eating in patients who were overweight or obese. And I think the main issue with with a lot of these studies is they are looking at people who already have a condition, either they're overweight or obese, um, and and so you know your results shouldn't be generalized to the general population necessarily. But they took one group. And they put them in a seven-week intervention group where they got a two-hour counseling uh, session with a psychologist. It was a group session. um, And the psychologist was trained in different protocols to teach them about um, mindfulness and awareness. um, And and they ran through this program for the seven-week. The control group just went to their general practitioner. Both groups um, received some kind of nutrition plan, essentially, um, to follow with the thought of reducing BMI, and they followed these people and they did a a post-treatment analysis, and then they actually looked at them a year later, and what they found is they didn't find any change uh, differences in weight that were significantly different between the control group and the intervention group. Um, but they did find that the intervention group um, had more uh, mindful eating pattern, um, and you can take that with a grain of salt. Um, but um, that training did help them in some regard, even a year out um, from receiving it. So um, it looks like, at least um, in, in some of these studies, that there might be some benefit um, with those uh training with those behaviors
0: yeah and and the way i'm looking at that too from the conclusion is basically like it's not going to hurt you to go get counseling maybe once a week if you feel like you deal with some of these uh with some of these issues so it's it's not going to hurt it might actually benefit you uh, not that this not that the data says it but i mean if it's not going to hurt you and it can help you why not
1: yeah uh, you know i think this is where I think you need to look at patients on an individual basis, right? Um, and, uh, you know, in my practice, if, if something isn't working, then we need, we need to look at everything. So, if, if there are emotional triggers or there's an emotional or psychological component to um, drive the behavior of eating, then, then that needs to be addressed. Um, like I said before, I have a pretty low threshold for saying, all right, You know, I think a multidisciplinary approach is going to be the best in a specific patient.
0: Yeah. And and going off on that uh, cognitive behavior, there are some um, cognitive behavior techniques that you can use, which goes into like another strategy. And one of them is called cognitive restructuring. And this is something that um, a friend of mine, uh, Brandon DeCruz, he actually mentioned in his, uh, one of his recent Instagram posts, which is funny because we're doing this today, and he released that post today. Um, but it's where you focus on changing the negative thought patterns. So the objective is to actually replace the impulse to eat with a more constructive action. So for example, maybe going for a walk outside because it gets you out of that initial environment where you're feeling that. Or maybe even just journaling your feelings and then having a reflection on it to get your mind off of the emotions that you're feeling. So there are many more cognitive behavioral techniques, but I feel like this one especially works um and with what I see in anecdotally with with clients. Um
1: I think cognitive behavioral strategies work for a lot of different things. Um, and I would not doubt that it would work in this, in this kind of setting, you know, as well.
0: Yeah. Um, another strategy, um, uh, which I need to e- sort of explain is, is flexible dieting. Now, the reason why I say that is because flexible dieting gets thrown around. Um, like if it fits your macros it was blown out of proportion and was taken in the, in the wrong direction, we're not talking about that. What we're talking about flexible dieting is just having a flexible approach um, that, that allows you to still have a balanced intake of different foods, right? But you're still staying within what you need in terms of calories and macronutrients um, and not looking at things as being either clean or dirty. So you're flexible and being able to incorporate foods that maybe you normally wouldn't have on a quote unquote diet plan. But the thing, yeah. yeah, but the thing with it is like if we're looking for the best results possible in terms of like physique transformation. Sticking with a structured plan that's simple and to the point that you can stay very consistent, that's going to be the easiest thing to do. But if you're dealing with these type of emotional triggers or emotional eating, then the best thing to do is get out of that structure and give yourself some more flexibility, right? Because that's going to allow you to, to get rid of that dichotomous view and that restricted feeling, right? Um, with this flexible dieting, you have... You know, an improved relationship with food because then you start to see, like, hey, I could still eat, you know, pizza, for example, and be on a diet. I could still drink beer and wine and lose weight and be on a diet as long as you're taking that extra measure to actually track, which is a whole different podcast topic that we'll talk about. But the flexible diet aspect of it is really, really great for those who deal with these types of emotional eating habits. So if you are someone who feels like, hey, I deal with some emotional triggers or I do emotionally eat, flexible dieting is probably going to be your best route. What
1: do you think about intuitive
0: um, I think you can't, uh, I don't think you could be intuitive until you actually learn how to um, create your own nutritional protocols. Uh, because usually what happens is like people want to, I don't want to track, I don't want to do this. It's perfectly fine. You don't have to forever, but you want to, in order to be intuitive, you need to have Uh, nutritional education. You need to have food awareness. You need to be able to understand what foods are comprised of. And the best way to do that is by going into a plan where it is structured. So you understand like, Hey, this has this much protein, carbs, and fats in this food item. And you just have this education about nutrition that comes with that. And that's when you could be intuitive. You can't be intuitive without the initial um, intelligence behind it is, is where I'm going with it.
1: Do you think that somebody that has emotional eating behavior patterns who then practices flexible dieting can transition to an intuitive dieting plan at some point?
0: It it, it depends. It really does because it's like, if they have emotional eating, if they have this pattern, then they're already at a disadvantage, number one. So if they're going into intuitive eating, you are. You have to be very cognizant of your emotions, right? You have to be able to listen to your body. That's intuition, and if you have these emotional triggers, it's going to throw everything off. So I would say they would have a hard time. But can it happen over time? Yeah. But it's all about allowing your body to learn, understand, and develop and evolve that way. Um, another an, another strategy to do, which I just mentioned. Um, with the whole structured plan and how it adds nutritional education is nutritional education. Like learn about the foods, teach yourself about the nutrition value of various foods and highlight the benefits of a well-rounded diet, right? Highlight the benefits of, you know, having a lot of fruit and vegetables. Highlight the benefits of having more protein than not. Highlight the benefits of saying, it's okay to have, you know, pizza on the weekends with my kids. Like I could do that right? Like you just need to educate yourself, which really honestly, probably the most education that's being put out is going to be on social media, but that's where you get the most conflicting information too. Uh, They're not all going to be like you, um, Dr. Aaron, where they could go in and read a research paper. (laughs) Um, So they rely on these um, social media influencers and the people that they trust. They listen to them like they're listening to us right now and they're becoming educated that way, which is good but you have to really try to. Uh, you got to try to navigate your way through what you feel is best for you. All right, there's not really going to be a right or wrong answer here. But having that nutritional education can help with emotional triggers through the fact that you know it could help alleviate that dichotomous view that you might have with clean and dirty foods.
1: Yeah, I. You know, the only thing I think I would maybe add is again to plug the multidisciplinary approach to look at, um, a patient and, and really, uh, have a team behind them, right. Um, try to figure out the root cause of what, what may be causing, um, their weight gain, um, whether there's a psychological component or not and, and taking that into account. And even, um, on the flip side, uh, making sure that they also don't have like, um, you know, maybe have a, a patient who, who isn't overweight necessarily, or a client, but maybe they have some other psychological issue. Um, and there are uh, medical inventories or or medical questionnaires that you can give, like the Eating Attitude Test, to kind of decipher if somebody um, does have a hidden eating disorder that they might not be telling you about. Um, it's a good screening tool. Um, so you know, using those clinical tools uh it, in these kinds of settings can be useful to give you information on um a patient uh one of the things yeah. sorry i didn't mean to cut you off go no, ahead, no,
0: go no, ahead. no 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 i was gonna cut you off i was just gonna say it'd be so cool um to do that eating's attitude test because you brought that to my attention i didn't even know it existed yeah. um to, to start doing this with the clients yeah. right even like the ones that we currently have like let's just throw it out there and let's see what they get and if you guys want like the link to that, uh, we could definitely put that in the show notes or you could just message us and we'll send that over to you.
1: I will say okay, that ahead,
0: fi- finish your point. Yeah, yeah
1: I will say that's more done in the, the setting of you suspect um an eating disorder and so and so some of the questions are geared that way. Um but it is an interesting test as far as like looking at um eating behaviors and and, and uh attitudes towards um weight loss and obesity. Um the only other thing I wanted to add is, um, you know, uh, looking at this dichotomous and psychological component, um, as I was looking at these different uh, research studies, a couple of authors um, said or mentioned in their research articles, which is kind of rare, it's, it's kind of a touchy-feeling thing, but they said that um, a lot of the uh, studies looked at or uh, referred to self-compassion, so, um, you know, that's basically defined as the ability to be considerate and kind towards yourself. I think um, we are often very hard on ourselves, whether, you know, you're in the high BMI um, range or in in the low BMI range, Um, we often are very hard on ourselves. And, um, you know, practicing, mindfulness and being kind to your, to your body and to yourself, I think is, is a big component of that, especially as you take on the task of either weight loss or body recomposition, whatever your goal might be. Um, I think it's an important thing that we often neglect and don't talk about.
0: Yeah. And, and you bring up that self-compassion and this is stuff that we do as a company. Like when we're developing plans, like we said, we do the whole mind aspect of it as well. It's not just the nutrition and the internal health. It's the mindset that you have going into it and the perspective that you have. And one of the main things um, that, that we do on a weekly basis as part of our foundational habits is self-love and being able to give yourself compliments and being able to do stress relief and journal and reflect on yourself and how you feel and start to become aware of that. It is a huge component, especially with the success of dieting, because if you go into dieting and stuff with this, uh, without self-compassion and you own this identity that, um, every diet doesn't work for you, or you own this identity that you're always going to be overweight and obese, then you're going to, you're, you inevitably, your mind's going to lead you in that direction, right? So there's a perspective flip that we like to do with our clients, um, initially right off the bat, like just so, you know, you understand, you know, you're, you're unique to your own self, um, appreciate how your body responds. Don't compare yourself to others. This is your body. So unique, like scale weight, waist circumference, um, You know, the fluctuations that you see, it's all going to be individual to you. So having that self-compassion, knowing that you aren't the same as anybody else, um, it goes big into being successful with with dieting. And this is what we do um, here with Balanced Bodies. So we do take um, a, a holistic approach to optimizing your health and while transforming your physique at the same time that's secondary to us now because we really care about the health i've dealt with it all like i've had clients that had binge eating disorders i had them that who emotionally ate and there's ways to cope with it but that's the thing i just don't want to cope with it i want to be able to get to the root cause and figure it out and that's out of my scope but there are strategies we could do to help in the meantime (laughs) um but dr n do you have any um closing thoughts for us
1: no, I just, I agree with that. Um, like I said, I, you know, my experience with it is that, uh, again, I have a low threshold for saying, all right, I think there might be a psychological component to this uh, patient, and um, I'm going to refer them to a psychologist or psychiatrist that I trust. Um, and, you know, I don't think there's any harm in, in um, using the specialties out there to help somebody achieve their best
0: self. We're going to wrap this up. Um, I would say if you guys are interested in our one-on-one coaching to reach out, but it's not one-on-one. It's actually three-on-one because it's me. It's Dr. Aaron, and it's also our CEC, Carrie, who uh, really, really take care of you. So if you are interested in our three-on-one coaching, uh, just reach out to us on uh, on Instagram. All the stuff's going to be in the show notes, or just go to our website and book a call with us. Uh, But we really appreciate your time. Uh, Thanks for listening. Hopefully, you guys learned some stuff. We added some value to our lives. And uh... the podcast content may include discussions of medical topics and
1: health-related information. However, the information provided should not be considered exhaustive or complete. And it should not be relied upon as a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment.